Hello, this is Dr. Marty Lustig, Senior Vice President and Principal with NextGen Advisors. Welcome to our weekly podcast focused on healthcare. I'd like to introduce today's special guest, Charles Smith, the CEO of Comprehensive Eye Care Partners, headquartered in Las Vegas, Nevada. Welcome, Charles. Dr. Lustig, it is good to see you again, and thanks for the opportunity to join you today. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about the impact of the pandemic on ophthalmology practices and implications for the future of vision services. But before we get into that topic, let's start by learning a little more about our guest. Charles, you're relatively new to the world of vision services. Can you tell us a little about your background and the journey that brought you to Comprehensive Eye Care Partners? And then maybe tell us a little about um, that organization as well. Sure, glad to. Uh, While I'm new to eye care, I've spent my career in healthcare services organizations with a focus over the last 20 years building and then operating national networks of independent specialty provider practices, oncology, some urology partners, hospital joint ventures. I continue to be passionate about working in healthcare. I'm very curious by nature. So I was recruited uh, to the opportunity with Comprehensive Eye Care Partners several years ago. And um, the ability to learn and work in eye care has just been a tremendous experience. So while I'm new to eye care, I've been at this for many years, and I think this was just a great way to blend prior skills and bring them to a a new space. Comprehensive Eye Care Partners, as an organization, partners with eye care practices. So ophthalmologists, optometrists, subspecialists in those fields to provide management services and support services that help make it easier for those practices to deliver high quality care, collaborate at a market or statewide or national level, and uh, share best practices. So it's been uh, really rewarding and um, between the emerging technologies in the space and I think caliber of the people that we work with in the organization, it's just been a lot of fun. Great, well thanks for that. So as I understand it, you had about a year under your belt uh, there uh, when the pandemic hit. So what did you learn and worked on during that first year that in retrospect helped prepare you for what was about to happen? It's a great question. Looking back, I really now see how fortunate I was to have that year to prepare, albeit unknowingly. Didn't see what was coming around the corner. So I, I would say there were three things that were critical in um, helping me prepare as best we could for the, uh, the coming crisis. I would say first and foremost was building trusted relationships with our partner practices. When you have a relationship that has meaningful, authentic levels of trust, you can just execute and get things done faster. You're not second guessing, you're not asking for additional analysis. So I um, think first impressions are super important and keeping your word and that opportunity to build trust was just incredibly valuable through the crisis. It was also a year to learn the operations in depth. We hadn't yet recruited a chief operating officer, so I um, was responsible for those duties as well, and it forced me to just really get in granularly with each of our partners. And then, because we were bringing together a number of partners into an enterprise, laying infrastructure and communication and organizational structure was also part of that first year. So between those three things, that year I think made a big difference for me 
in uh, preparing me to be effective in the role. If you were talking about what you needed to do to plan for crisis management, you would probably bring up the same three issues. Making sure you have a trusting environment, making sure you've got a good operational understanding of the organization and making sure that you have good infrastructure communication channels. So it was just good leadership that led to the ability to turn a corner quickly with this crisis. Let's talk a little bit more about the crisis, if you don't mind. You know, given all that's gone on in the last year, it feels like the distant past, but you can go to those back, if you can, think back to those first days and weeks of the pandemic and talk about the impact of the initial lockdown on the, on the practices that you work with and what your responses were then. Sure, glad to. I think um, it is funny that it's just a little over a year ago uh, it feels like it aged me far more than that, right? In terms of, you know, the do in dog years, I, I think I aged maybe six or seven. But um, on Friday, March 13th of last year, sticks out in my mind uh, because we really started seeing indications about how rapidly um, information was coming out and things were beginning to change. So we formed a crisis management team on that day. It included six physicians, doctors from our organization. They represented the various subspecialties and services of our eye care organization. And then six members of the management team. So HR, clinic and ASC operations, finance, myself. And together, that group of 12, I think, was positioned to have a holistic view and set of inputs on the safety and needs of our patients, providers, and staff. And I put it in that order, safety first and needs second, because there was fear and uncertainty about really what was happening. So preserving safety, I think, helped preserve a more meaningful sense of calm, right? We met daily uh, for the following few weeks with an initial focus, I would say, to collect and then synthesize and communicate all the information that was coming in, the guidance we were getting from various agencies and professional organizations. So. The indications were coming in daily from many different resources. Sometimes they aligned, sometimes they didn't. What was relevant in eye care, what was not relevant in eye care, what was relevant in the outpatient setting versus the hospital setting, access to PPE. So all those things. And we had lots of people offering inputs and, and uh, pinging from many vast corners of the organization. But this group really took over, I think, a lot of the operational responsibility of how we were going to operate through those early months of the crisis. And it's incredibly effective. Um, I would say uh, sharing that guidance, the synthesis through all hands teleconferences with our entire organization on a regular basis helped to stay connected as an organization. And it also just created some structure in a period where there was a lot of uncertainty. And we were able to debunk things that were true and then reinforce things that were. So that crisis management team and in turn our practices followed the guidance of the leading professional societies and we suspended elective care in our clinics and surgery centers while we also continued to provide urgent and emergent care so patients who have retinal detachments or chronic conditions like glaucoma that may still need to have care or emergent care we needed to be available and there for them so it's not like we could shut the doors and, and, and not be there. About a week after we formed that crisis management team, 80% of our overall patient services were suspended. So about 20% were preserved collectively that was urgent and emergent care focused. But that's a massive change in 
you know, seven to ten days. Um, we were successful, I would say, in, even in the early weeks, implementing a telemedicine program across all of the partner practices. And some of them were um, next-gen products. I think we were pleased with the opportunity to work swiftly and successfully there. And um, we consolidated our surgical and clinical services into a subset of facilities. So we shut down many and focused the care into a subset of facilities to still cover our, our geographic reach. I think the ability to stand up swiftly, the telemedicine services, it was also an opportunity for us to demonstrate some control and focus on a new capability while we're in the midst of a much broader environment where there was so little control and so much frustration. And this was a sense of we can do something positive, we can still interact with our patients. And it was probably 20% of our um, care for those months where we were nearly fully shut down. So. We continue to use it, I think, selectively in some subspecialty areas. I don't think it's a solution for ophthalmology the way it might be in some other specialties, but it really reinforced for me, you know, with focus how quickly we could get something done if we really wanted to. So if you had told me a year ago, I want you to stand up telemedicine programs in all the practices in 14 days, I would have said, mm, that's a big ask, but we did it. And I think it created a spirit of, this will make us stronger. That's great. So you, know, you talk about how, how, how fast and how far the, your volume uh, dropped in those first weeks. So can you talk about the, the journey of the second half of last year, trying get, to get back to, for lack of a better word, normal level of engagement with your, with your patients, get your surgery centers back open? How did that second half of the year go? How did you navigate that? I'd say um, after the ramp down, where we were shutting down clinics and ASCs, consolidating the teams to the subset of service, subset of locations, the dust was settling, elective care was suspended in the country. We immediately turned the team's focus to planning the ramp up. It, like immediately, I don't think we took a day off, and I had a lot of talented people in a number of management roles where this was exactly what they should be doing, right? So we continued, I would say, to make safety our top priority. So for the folks that were coming in and um, the ones that would come in once we did open up, I think without a, a sense of this is a safe environment, not just from a perception perspective, but also from a, 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 a real perspective, then we can go from there. But prioritizing that and then combining it, I think with just relentless planning, being decisive, using that crisis management team to help plan the ramp up and then over communicating that all those things put together, what it translated into was speed. So when things did open up and we were ready to go back and provide elective care, the planning was done. We knew the sequence in which we were gonna do it, who was gonna go, when they were gonna go, what the triggers would be for the next phases, all while trying to prioritize safety. So um, that was speed and execution and preserving safety, broadening our access to care. And I think it gave us a competitive advantage uh, against other providers. And I just think we were there and available and access was safe and easy and others may have been reluctant to move as quickly or were not as prepared when the opportunity to reopen up elective care presented itself. So um, it could have been marketing. I think in a lot of our centers, we, uh, we operate in uh, Southern Nevada, which is very hot in the summertime. So with limitations on the number of patients in a waiting room, et cetera, a more vulnerable population 
How do we communicate with them? So we are uh, preserving that safety while also still managing them away from having to stand outside in you know high heat or humidity. So I think text messaging and electronic connectivity ended up really being super helpful. And then just a bigger, deeper focus on process, right? And eliminating waste inefficiencies. It's interesting. It kind of reminds me, I think it's the Abe Lincoln story of, you know, give me six hours to cut down a tree and I'll spend the first four hours sharpening it, sharpening my ax. Um, sort of, you know, all the planning you put in place in anticipation really sounds like it really uh, gave you a huge advantage when it came to execution time. Yeah, we hope so. I think um, we felt like that was the right thing to do at that time. And uh, the business seems to have um, responded well. So maybe it was really helpful. Maybe it wasn't. That's what we chose to do. And so far it's working out. So it kind of brings me to the next question. You know, you, you talked about how you overcame some of the challenges related to the pandemic or are still overcoming them. But inevitably, a crisis like the pandemic creates opportunity as well as challenges. From where you sit, what do you see as the biggest opportunities for your organization coming out of the pandemic? Um, I think that we demonstrated a resilience and internal alignment that is differentiating us with prospective partners. So other practices in the communities that we currently serve or in other markets through us telling the story or them speaking with our own groups of providers on their experience are saying, boy, those guys really came together and supported one another and executed well. And their performance seems to reflect that. So I think that as, as practices consider opportunities to partner with organizations like ours, I think it makes us look like a, a good bet. And um, that'll help us expand the business faster. It's probably one of the, uh, you know, it's, it was um, crisis was opportunity and um, chaos was opportunity. And I think um, that's demonstrating itself now. I think we are seeing more interest and uh, in communities and with, I'd say, in settings where we're competing against other really good organizations. But that's, I think, ended up making a difference. It, it's also demonstrating, you know, those same, those same results um, is attractive to business partners and investors that these guys know how to run a good shop. And it was a tremendous field test, right, on management and collaboration and cooperation. You're not going to get a field test like that again, hopefully, in the balance of my career. But uh, proof proof was in the pudding. That's great. Thank you. So now I'm going to ask you to think uh, and look more broadly, not just at your organization, but if you think about vision services in general, what do you see as the implications of the pandemic, you know, not just both for ophthalmologists and for vision services colleagues that they, you know, that they work with that you've mentioned going forward, how is uh, vision services going to be different than it has been? I think uh, I think vision services. There's a tremendous um, need, right, in terms of uh, an aging demographic and our own population. And the and vision, I think, is uh, prized, right, among everyone. It's preserving it, and I think protecting it and taking care of it. So, uh, I think it attracts talented providers. Uh, as you look across the country, there are many, many 
practices and providers that are, uh, I would say, relatively small, one or two docs or three docs. And I think going through a career where you've been independent and been successful and, you know, why change? It's everything's great. I think the last year probably gave people a sense of what it feels like to be a little bit more alone or not resourced if something really rough, you know, shows up on your horizon. And um, I think for practices that are smaller or we're not resourced in the same way, it may open them up or accelerate their interest in saying, you know, I still want to be independent, but I may want somebody that I can count on, at least for some of these things that, you know, who knows what the next crisis is. There will be a crisis. It may not be as severe as the last one, but going, al- going it alone is great until, you know, you really run into some rough road. So um, I think, will, it see, will we see an acceleration of interest in networks like ours or larger groups as opposed to smaller independent groups? And I think that's probably on the horizon. Interesting. So a- another angle on, on that is you had mentioned that, you know, that the telemedicine that you implemented last year you're still using it, but in very targeted ways, given the issues related to vision services, that only uh, certain parts of them lend themselves well to it. Have you thought about, you know, as a result of this, what are the implications when people have an app on their iPhone that enables them to take a retinal image? And how will technology like that change vision services going forward, if at all? That's a great question. So I think um, on the subspecialty areas, I think in pediatrics, it's been uh, something that continues to be helpful. Um, Inoculoplastics, it's also been useful for our providers to get a look at things. I think for general ophthalmology, it's a little tougher, but we think that there uh, continues to be areas we'll focus on and explore in those two subspecialty areas. Part of um, what we do with some payers that we that we work closely with is um, partnering with them on diabetic retinopathy screening programs and some of that can be imaging centric some of it can be more um, you know other data sources but um, nonetheless how you reach large sets of patients with electronic tools like this is definitely part of the future population management so I think diabetes is a uh, you know, uh, an epidemic in the U.S. and retinopathy is something that uh, you're likely to get over time. So we think there's value for the patients, there's value for the payers, and uh, some of the telemedicine-like capabilities are things we're actually working on. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you, Charles, for sharing your knowledge and expertise and time with us today. And thanks to our listeners, of course, for tuning in. Don't forget, you can subscribe to our podcast to get a weekly reminder of each new episode. This again is Dr. Marty Lustig with NextGen Advisors. Have a great day.